Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in optometry. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. Greetings, ModPod listeners. Thanks for checking out this episode. On tap, we have for you three thoughtfully crafted articles on very different but very important topics. Rather than draw things out, let's get right to it. As you hopefully all are aware, access to quality healthcare is still not a guarantee for all people everywhere. That said, various organizations are making efforts to improve population health, especially among minority groups. Let's give a listen to our first article of the episode by Lori Latowski Grover, Director at the Center for Eye and Health Outcomes and Visiting Scientist at Southern College of Optometry in Memphis, Tennessee, as we find out why health equity matters. Health equity is a key concept that is receiving increased attention with a focus on really how to improve population health. However, it's not uncommon for this concept to be misconstrued or poorly understood, especially when attempting to adopt it within your team or look at other approaches to reach agreement on priorities, such as with individual offices, large healthcare facilities, or even our own professional groups. Here's my overview of the current state of health equity, as well as ways that you can support this mission in your own practice. Health equity is an important public bridge to the diversity of healthcare stakeholders for building consensus, for supporting dialogue, and implementing actions that can improve the overall health of people, independent of who we are or where we live. The American Public Health Association, or as we lovingly refer to it as the APHA, demonstrates health inequity effectively by showing that certain groups of people are more at risk for certain diseases but have less ability to get treatment, so they are more likely to have severe health consequences or to die from treatable, preventable diseases. The APHA also explains how equity does not mean equality or simply equalizing opportunities. Rather, those with worse health and fewer resources require a range of patient-specific efforts in order to truly achieve optimal health. The APHA provides a wealth of resources and information on health equity on its website, And you can find that at www.apha.org. And their resources include an excellent educational video. The Robert Wood Johnson Foundation defines health equity as a state in which everyone has a fair and just opportunity to be as healthy as possible. This requires removing obstacles to health, such as poverty, discrimination, and their consequences including powerlessness and lack of access to jobs with fair pay, quality education and housing, safe environments, and health care. Health disparities were at the forefront of a groundbreaking 2003 Institute of Medicine report titled Unequal Treatment, Confronting the Racial and Ethnic Disparities in Healthcare. 
And this report found that people of color, referred to as POC, you'll see that in the literature, receive lower quality medical care than do white people. Since that time, a multitude of national initiatives and programs focused on health disparities and health equity have emerged. For example, in 2005, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or the CDC, expanded its Office of Minority Health to become the Office of Minority Health and Health Disparities. And then in 2011, the title changed again to the Office of Minority Health and Health Equity. The CDC states that health equity is achieved when everyone has the opportunity to attain their full health potential. Another example is the Commonwealth Fund's Advancing Health Equity Program, which was established in 2021, and that program aims to eliminate unequal treatment, experience, and outcomes in health and health care for people of color by reducing systemic racism in healthcare policy and practice. The Robert Wood Johnson Foundation launched the Finding Answers Initiative in 2005, which focused on moving beyond merely documenting racial and ethnic differences in healthcare to actually supporting efforts that eliminate them. And by 2018, the initiative had gathered data from 33 different organizations focusing on cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and depression, or in other words, diseases for which they found strong evidence of racial and ethnic disparities. These findings culminated in the development of the Roadmap to Advance Health Equity. In addition, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, or CMS, adopted health equity as a 2022 pillar in the CMS strategic plan. So since 2020, a substantial number of healthcare stakeholders and related professional organizations have also adopted similar aims through initiatives involving inclusion, diversity, anti-racism, and equity. Many organizations also include achieving health equity as a primary objective and focus on how we can help achieve optimal health for all. These include reducing disparities in a broad range of areas, like within the workforce, within care delivery protocols, in funded scientific research, in publications, and specifically in access to healthcare. It also includes increasing awareness of the effects of determinants of health, systemic racism, and discrimination, and of the existing educational and professional training protocols that are related to these topics. Universal health equity does not yet exist, but a large body of knowledge continues to evolve on how this can be achieved. Strategies to improve health equity include identifying key health disparities and truly understanding important determinants of health such as having health insurance, which is a primary determinant of health, education, income status, living and working conditions, and how these determinants affect the overall health of patients and specific health populations. Many advocacy groups have begun to focus on reducing inequities in the resources needed to be healthy by working to implement laws, 
environments, and practices that eliminate unfair conditions for disadvantaged groups. In order to achieve health equity, providers, payers, and constituents must also be committed to the mission of improving health and eliminating discriminations regardless of race, ethnicity, gender, sexual identity, age, disability status, preferred language, religion, employment status, income, migrant status, and other factors like health literacy. Your efforts to educate yourself and implement change will certainly help others to realize that health equity truly is important. Ultimately, reducing disparities in health will lead to decreased morbidity and decreased mortality. As the mission for health equity becomes a more widely adopted priority among healthcare stakeholders, it is important to translate these efforts into our patients' communities across the country to achieve optimal U.S. population health. Are you supporting health equality in your practice? For more information and resources on this topic, read the online version of this article on modernod.com. Turning our attention to the next article in the lineup, we have an interesting piece queued up for you on the treatment of glaucoma in patients with cataracts. But we're going to pause for a minute and we'll be back after this brief message. Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in optometry. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. All right, without further delay, we give you Justin Schweitzer, one of MOD's chief medical editors and an optometrist at Vance Thompson Vision in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Find out why combining treatments for both glaucoma and cataract has several benefits. Patients with glaucoma who require cataract surgery present us with a window of opportunity to help them not only see better, but also to control their glaucoma. I'll briefly touch on some considerations to keep in mind when caring for this particular patient base. When you have a patient who is taking multiple glaucoma medications and who has a visually significant cataract, there's no reason not to pair their cataract surgery with a microinvasive glaucoma surgery. MIGS will likely reduce the number of medication the patient uses at no added risk to the cataract procedure. In fact, several studies show that cataract surgery alone can lower IOP, but that additional IOP lowering can be achieved when cataract surgery is combined with a MIGS procedure. Compliance or non-adherence with medication remains an issue within all of our practices. In the Travitan dosing study, patients were given medication free of charge and told that it would be monitored. Still, nearly 45% of the patients used the drop less than 75% of the time. In another compliance study by Nordstrom et al., more than 90% of patients were not adherent with their dosing regimens and 50% of these patients stopped using their medications by six months. We conducted a small three-month prospective pilot study at our center that looked at ocular surface disease in patients undergoing a MIGS procedure. Our goal was to find out if MIGS could improve quality of life and improve the tear film surface in other ways. 
The clinical trial enrolled 47 eyes, and we had each patient fill out an ocular surface disease index questionnaire preoperatively. The average OSDI score was 40.1, which falls into the severe category assessing dry symptoms and the effects on vision-related functions in a patient's life. The patients underwent cataract surgery plus stent or stents, and we followed them through the postoperative period for three months. We had them fill out the OSDI questionnaire again, and this time the score was 17.5, which falls in the mild category on the OSDI scale. Another finding of the study was that patients had a 35% longer tear breakup time at three months postoperatively compared with their preoperative tear breakup time. We also saw significantly less corneal staining, significantly less conjunctival staining, and less hyperemia. This was to be suspected because we were able to decrease the medication burden for patients in the study with the combination of cataract surgery and MIGS procedures. Patients went from an average of 1.4 medications to an average of 0.5 medications at three months. The treatment of glaucoma is moving from patient-driven protocols. Examples would be excessive eye drops towards a more physician-driven mindset. What this means is intervening earlier in the disease process with effective treatment options that don't burden our patients with excessive medications. Gone are the days of starting patients on one medication, then moving to two medications, and finally adding a third medication. Once they progress on excessive medications, we send them for a tube shunt or trabeculectomy. We now have a middle ground where we don't need to necessarily add a bunch of medications and then move to those aggressive therapies like tubes or trabs. We're able to recommend a MIGS procedure or drug delivery or even selective laser trabeculoplasty and really make a difference in our patients' lives. Patients with visually significant cataracts and mild to moderate glaucoma are the low-hanging fruit. But we also have to consider those patients who are not progressing and who have ocular surface disease or quality of life issues as candidates for these procedures. There are a variety of MIGS procedures. Examples include stenting procedures, goniotomies, abinternal trabeculotomies that can be combined with cataract surgery, many of which are on label when performed in conjunction with one another. It's an exciting time to treat patients with glaucoma, and we have new opportunities for those who have both cataracts and glaucoma to really change their lives in a positive way. We're still going to use drops in the management of these patients, but it's also a surgical disease, and the key is collaborating between ophthalmology and optometry and figuring out ways we can intervene to make the lives of our patients better. A short and sweet piece with some interesting data from their pilot study. Have questions or comments about it? Send them our way. Just email me at kroman at bmctoday.com and I'll pass them along. Or go to modernod.com and find the article there, which includes Dr. Schweitzer's contact information, and reach out to him yourself. Now for the last article of the episode. How good are you at differential diagnoses? Well, Josh Davidson, an optometrist at Williamson Eye Center in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, has some guidance on distinguishing characteristics to help you make the right diagnosis the first time when trying to figure out if you're dealing with bacterial conjunctivitis or something else. 
Distinguishing between the masqueraders on this list and bacterial conjunctivitis can be tricky, even for the seasoned optometrist. However, misdiagnosis can often lead to frustration for both clinician and patient when symptoms fail to clear up with prescribed therapies. This general overview is going to offer a quick guide to help you determine which ocular condition you may be dealing with and how best to treat it once you've correctly identified the cause of those symptoms. So there's really five ocular conditions commonly mistaken for chronic conjunctivitis. The first is allergic conjunctivitis. Uh, in my clinic, allergic conjunctivitis is definitely among the top three most common causes of kind of that long-standing quote-unquote pink eye. Uh, especially this time of the year, it's November. You know, we're kind of hitting that tail end of allergy season, and patients are often miserable showing up with just these kind of really red, watery, irritated eyes. So every day, patients are presenting, um, reporting that they've seen multiple doctors, whether they're different optometrists, ophthalmologists, PCPs, after hours, whatever. They've seen multiple providers, and they've received antibiotic drops from each of them, all of which... None of those drops have really helped their symptoms at all. Allergic conjunctivitis is in the family of a bunch of different conditions, including seasonal allergic conjunctivitis, vernal keratoconjunctivitis, VKC, atopic conjunctivitis, and perennial allergic conjunctivitis. Allergic conjunctivitis affects patients of any age. In my experience practicing here in South uh, Louisiana, there doesn't really seem to be a predilection for race or sex. It's estimated that up to 40% of the U.S. population experiences ocular allergies, which is a pretty uh, amazing statistic. 40% of that population in the U.S. is experiencing ocular allergies. And these symptoms do seem to be more prevalent in the spring and summer seasons, kind of during those uh, seasonal changes. Common signs and symptoms of allergic conjunctivitis include extreme itching, obviously, Conjunct, uh, conjunctival hyperemia, a papillary reaction. Oftentimes we see a little stringy discharge. And you know one of the hallmarks is that constant epiphora, that kind of red, watery eye. The redness and hyperemia are typically minor in appearance and cause a diffuse redness throughout the eye, a very characteristic appearance. Papillae found on the palpebral conjunctiva is also a hallmark of allergic conjunctivitis, that can be found in most of our patients. These papillae can be as large as one millimeter and are typically located under the superior lid, which are also known as giant papillae. We often find that allergic conjunctivitis also prevents with chemosis and swelling of the lid area. So it might not just be the ocular surface itself that that's involved. Something to keep in mind. I'll typically use an antihistamine to treat mild to moderate cases of allergic conjunctivitis and a mild steroid for moderate to severe cases, especially those with associated edema and significant ocular surface inflammation. The second thing we typically see in clinic is viral conjunctivitis. So studies show that viruses cause up to 80% of acute conjunctivitis cases, although acute conjunctivitis is commonly misdiagnosed and treated as bacterial conjunctivitis. Gosh, I think already twice today I've had a viral conjunctivitis that was misdiagnosed and mistreated um, by an after hours as a bacterial conjunctivitis. So it's something we see a lot here and I'm sure you see in your clinic quite a bit too. I typically find that viral conjunctivitis has an acute onset unilaterally with the second eye becoming involved within about two weeks. Again, that's just my experience. 
Due to misdiagnosis and improper treatment, symptoms can linger for weeks upon weeks, weeks thanks to constant reinfection. Typical viral infection in my clinic is caused by the adenoviruses and presents with the watery discharge, follicular reaction of the palpebral conge, diffuse conjunctival injection, chemosis, ocular swelling, as well as subepithelial infiltrates. Those SCIs are, are really, really common, or really a uh, textbook in viral conjunctivitis. Swollen lymph nodes are also common in viral conjunctivitis and are rarely found in any other type of conjunctivitis. It should be noted that many types of viral conjunctivitis, especially the adenoviral cases, are highly contagious, with the risk of transmitting to other people uh, reaching 50%. I typically treat patients who present with an established case of viral conjunctivitis with a mild steroid and refrigerated, preservative-free artificial tears for a minimum of two weeks. For patients with new onset or acute viral conjunctivitis, I'll generally offer them an off-label betadine solution with povidone iodone 5%. Two potential new treatments for viral conjunctivitis that have me especially interested are the ophthalmic suspension of povidone iodone 0.6% and dexamethasone 0.1%, both of which are currently under investigation. The third type uh, of issue we're going to describe here is uveitis. In my opinion, uveitis should always be at the top of the differential diagnosis when a patient presents with diffuse redness, discomfort, and acute conjunctival hyperemia. Typically, the redness injection is circumlimbal, giving a characteristic appearance behind the slit lamp. We'll see varying amounts of cells in flare are also present in the anterior chamber, so be sure to act adequately check for this. So really make sure you're looking for cells in flare. In addition to these findings, KPs, or keratic precipitates, can be seen, notably in the inferior half of the cornea. I also find that patients with lingering uveitis often report that the red eye is becoming worse. It's typically not something that comes and goes with incorrect diagnosis and sub subsequent incorrect treatment, but rather continuously declines. To treat uveitis and relieve the patient of their symptoms, a topical steroid is typically necessary. I'll typically pound it with um, prednisolone or a strong steroid quite often, quite a few times a day, and then slowly taper it off. Dry eye. Dry eye is kind of my, my specialty, and patients with dry eye often present with a diffuse red eye. Many of these patients have attempted to treat their presumed case of pink eye with various types of OTC drops, including redness relievers. So many of my patients come in with pink eye or self-diagnosed pink eye, and in fact, they just have a very, very dry eye. We know that the redness reliever, OTCs, um, can, this approach can actually make the situation worse as the rebound hyperemia takes hold after the effect of the drop wears off and can make things worse. To help combat this treatment misdirection, any patient with symptoms of eye redness or discomfort should be given a validated dry eye questionnaire as well as a full dry eye workup. I recommend a myography, tear breakup time, vital dye staining, and a thorough slit lamp examination with meibomian gland expression. And all this is at a minimum. You can always do more including tests for tear osmolarity and inflammation. I'll typically run those in my clinic uh, on any patient who presents with any of these kind of red eye symptoms. Appropriate testing and diagnostics will catch most patients with dry eye and help you develop a more proper treatment plan. Blepharitis is the fifth and really the last point 
uh, pink eye point that we're going to talk about here. Blepharitis is caused by an overgrowth of the human body's natural flora, notably bacteria from the staph family. Most of my patients report persistent red eye lasting for months with little to no ocular discharge. They also complain of a foreign body sensation and constant trash on their eyelids. Upon examination, a small papillary response is often present, along with diffuse injection, collarettes around the lashes. There's been a lot of discussions around about collarettes were here recently. And these collarettes will demonstrate active demodex. Uh, we'll also see capped meibomian glands with blepharitis and saponification of the eyelids. Blepharitis, as a masquerader, can be especially tricky to discern. I find that patients with chronic blepharitis can fluctuate quite wildly in their presentation and symptoms from day to day. Oftentimes, these patients have been treated by a non-eye care practitioner with an antibiotic drop or ointment. These treatments can improve symptomology, but typically when the treatment is discontinued, the symptoms just come roaring back. I often take a multifaceted approach when treating blepharitis. If saponification is present, I'll prescribe a hypochlorous acid spray. Um, Acuacin is one of my favorites. Avanova is a good one too. I'll typically use that twice a day. Saponification is actually caused by the staph bacteria producing lipases that break down the tear film's lipid layer, resulting in a kind of that bubbly appearance. Hypochlorous acid products have antiseptic and anti-inflammatory properties that work to kill bacteria thus reducing the amount of lipase released. Depending on the severity of the blepharitis, I'll also consider adding Tobradex ST or, or some other kind of, uh, kind of combination drop that has both a steroid and an antibiotic in it. And I'll usually use this four times a day to the affected eye and debride the lashes in the office with Blefex, which removes that biofilm and the pro-inflammatory debris in patients with that staph blepharitis. The differential diagnosis for patients presenting with symptoms of conjunctivitis can sometimes feel like a maze, but hopefully the navigational tools and insights provided here will help you all clear the path to treatment. Hopefully we kept the episode interesting with the variety of topics we covered, and maybe you even learned a thing or two. Thanks for listening. Always feel free to write in at K-R-O-M-A-N at bmctoday.com with questions, comments, or suggestions. We love feedback. Until next time, be well.